Oh yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Good. Did you have fun? How many people were there? It was like pretty full. The Pearl yeah. so I'd say like 40, 45. 40? Um, I don't know. I've not been engaging this uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I wanted to come, but there was. Um, I'd do all sorts of stuff with the kids because Laura was there. <laughs> so. um, all right. How's Paradise Lost going? Are you liking it? Is that the wrong question? <laughs> Are you like, how, mu- how come you're liking it so much? What's the best thing about it? The seemingly effortless beauty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good answer. Can I say something strange? And maybe it's just in the, con- it's in the context of this class, but this reminds me a lot of the Book of Ephraim. Go on. Um, taking... Yeah. Um, taking lyrical verse and using it to tell a story that's like I, I feel like I couldn't even begin to really penetrate this without discussing it I think that's the, the primary thing but it's also that you I, I read this as I read that like a story, like a narrative but in fact it's not, because there's double and triple meanings in almost every line. So what's an example? Uh, from here? From yeah. Paradise Lost? Um, let's see. We were talking about the, the battle scene in the last class, and that's one that I'm not sure. I don't remember. Well, I can probably give you a good example, although it's not, um, it wasn't in the assigned reading, but right after the invocation of book three, um, we're in heaven. So remember, plot-wise, do you guys need plot summary at all? I mean, a lot happens and not that much happens, but um, it happens in some detail. Yeah. Um, okay, so book, so very quickly, just so you know the arguments at the beginning of each book, um, that's because Milton's publisher in 1667 uh, got complaints from readers who said, this is really too hard. Uh, we don't understand what's happening. So it's not just, oh my God, 21st century people, they're just so ignorant. Um, and it's not that the language changed. It's that Milton was really, really hard. and he was, His readers at the time thought he was really, really hard. There may be a way that he's actually slightly easier now than he was then because um, we know a whole lot of what he's saying, and at the time this was brand new. Um, there are works of literature that get easier over time as they become form- more familiar to the culture. Um, Paradise Lost never became that familiar to the culture, but it's certainly more familiar now than it was then. Um, so his publisher said, I really need plot summaries <laughs> for the second edition um, because people are just finding they don't know what's going on. So Milton wrote the plot summaries, which are the arguments to the 12 books of Paradise Lost. And um, what Byron said about Coleridge might apply to those as well. Um, Byron said of Coleridge. Um, And there's Coleridge explaining metaphysics to the nation. I wish he would explain his explanation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be that you need plot summaries. Well, you can find them in Cliff's Notes. Um, plot summaries to the plot summaries. Um, remember Milton is Blind, and it's actually very interesting if you do read all of Paradise Lost that he gets one major thing wrong in his own plot summary. Um, and what he gets wrong is kind of telling. Um, and I will tell what he gets wrong. Um, which is that um, Raphael is supposed to tell Adam and Eve that Satan is in the garden, but he doesn't. And um, Milton thought he did, and that kind of underlines the fact that he doesn't. Mm. Um, That Milton thought, yeah, Adam and Eve should really know this, and when he does the plot summary, he assumes that he had them know it, Um, but he very explicitly doesn't. And um, that makes it a little bit harder to say that Adam and Eve were fully warned. Um, So what happens is, um, well, all right, so to give you the plot summary of all of Paradise Lost, since um, you don't get to read it in every class, unlike in the 20th century. um, So books one and two, what happens in book one is the fallen angels find themselves in hell. And um, they assert, especially Satan asserts, Um, that freedom trumps um, comfort, freedom trumps wealth, that it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, Mammon will call this a state of splendid vassalage in book two. That is, um, you're in a wonderful um, place. It's gold and silver and, and milk and honey and everything, but it's still a prison and better to be free in hell. And um, so that assertion of freedom is um, something that the fallen angels are intent on. Satan, most of all, but they're all faithful to him. Um, And what they talk about, what they think about is freedom. This is what we talked about on Tuesday. So then the question is, they have a council in the place called Pandemonium. So if you know that word, the word is invented by Milton. Um, It's not that he said, oh, pandemonium, I think I'll put one in hell. It's rather that he imagined them building um, a palace called um, the Palace of All Demons. What? It is 12.30? Yeah. Oh, it was 1 o'clock. All right. You thought we were meeting at 1. Yeah. No, we had a little discussion. Oh. Um, I mean, on Tuesday. Oh, that was there. I think Um, it might have been late. All right, here we are. Okay, hello. Hi. Um, So pandemonium. Um, And so all the angels, how do they all fit in? How do all the rebel angels fit in? Do you remember? Remember? How do the rebel angels fit in? Yeah, into pandemonium. They become tiny. They're shapeshifters. They can shift their shape. That really matters. And in order to speak, <coughs> pandemonium is beautiful. The part at the end of book one of Paradise Lost, where when they enter, um, and I mentioned this on Tuesday, is that um, this is book one line um, 731. Um, after the description of pandemonium, now the hasty multitude admiring entered. And the work, some praise, and some the architect. So some say it's a great work, and some say, no, it's the maker, the architect of this great work is great. And the work, some praise, and some the architect. Who's the architect? Well, 
his hand was known in heaven by many a tower and structure high. So he built a lot of heaven. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high, where sceptered angels held their residence and sat as princes, whom the supreme king exalted to, to such power and gave to rule, each in his hierarchy the orders bright. So he had built the great palaces in heaven. Um, nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece. So not only was he known in heaven at this time, but later on, once human history started, he was, his name was heard and known and adored. That is, he was regarded as a god in ancient Greece. And in Ausonian land, anyone know what Ausonian land is? Italy. Um, that's one of the older names for Italy, um, where Rome was established after the fall of Troy. That's the mythology. And in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber. So do you know what his Greek name is? Vulcan. 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 Well, no, actually his Greek name is Hephaestus. Vulcan is another Roman name. But yeah, so Mulciber, Vulcan, Hephaestus. And in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber. And do you remember the, the end of book one of the Iliad? Uh, of the Iliad, is that... So what happens at the end Hera. of book one? Hera, yeah. Uh, Isn't Hera talking to Hephaestus? Yes. She threw him to... She says, oh. go, go um, help me with, um, with Zeus. And because I really want to help the Greeks. And Hephaestus says, no, I once did that before. And um, when I helped you against him, I got into so much trouble that he threw me out of heaven. And that's how he's crippled. And that's how, how he's crippled. So, so these lines are now translated by Milton. Um, and an Osonian lineman called him Mulsiver, and how he fell from heaven they fabled, thrown by angry Jove, sheer or the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. So he fell for an entire day. And with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate. So that's the Greek story about the fall of Mulciber or Hephaestus, that he fell an entire day until he landed on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate, and then this very famous enjambment, thus they relate, erring. So we get to the end of the line. They tell that story, and then wrongly, mm. the story is wrong. Thus they relate, erring. For he with this rebellious rout fell long before, nor aught availed him now to have built in heaven high towers nor did he scape by all his engines, but was headlong sent with his industrious crew to build in hell. So um, what Milton is saying is Homer told the story, but he told a distorted and a corrupted version of the story. Yes, Hephaestus did fall from heaven. Yes, he was thrown out of heaven by heaven's king. No, it wasn't the way Homer said. It was the way I'm saying. So once again, there's comparison of Paradise Lost to the Iliad. 
and he translates those three lines of the Iliad, um, and then he says, but they're wrong. Thus they relate erring. So all the rebel angels enter into pandemonium, which Malsabur has built, and they become very, very tiny so that they'll all fill because they're, because, so that they don't overflow it because there's so many of them. And then the head angels, the archangels, the head of Satan and his council in their own size have a discussion about what to do next. And um, it turns out that Satan and Beelzebub have kind of set this discussion up so that um, Satan will look good to his followers. So the discussion is, what do we do now? Here we are in hell. What should we do? And one possibility is, we'll just grab some of this hellfire and go back to heaven and attack them again. That doesn't seem like a smart idea. Another possibility is... We'll repent, we'll do our best here, we may get used to it, we already know that God can really cause us extreme harm, and that's really unpleasant, and we should just keep our heads down. But Satan's view is, no, we've heard this rumor about the creation of a new world, Earth, and that God is going to people Earth with angelic or almost angelic beings in order to um, make up for our loss in heaven, to repopulate heaven. And what we should do is screw him up. What we should do is um, mess earth up, convert the earthlings to our party, to our side. But how do we get there? It's going to be a really, really hard um, road to hoe, a really hard slog. Anyone volunteer? And, of course, no one does. And then Satan, who's been ready for this, this was what he and um, Beelzebub have planned beforehand, Satan says, I wouldn't be worth, worthy being your king if I weren't willing to attempt this task. So Satan agrees to attempt the task that no one else agrees to do. And what he's doing there is he's saying, God runs heaven, but for, we only obeyed him because it was our custom to do so. But there was no, it wasn't a meritocracy. We had no idea why he was running heaven. We just thought, oh, yeah, God's running heaven, right. But then when we realized that there was no particular reason that we could see that he should be in charge of things, we said no. We asserted our own freedom. I, who am your leader, I put what we should do next to a vote to you guys, Satan says to the rebel angels. You came up with a good idea, and the reason it's right that I'm your leader is that I am willing to undertake this incredibly dangerous trip to earth from hell where we are locked in. I am going to be the one to attempt to escape. I'm going to be the one who will attempt to cross the in unnavigable chaos of chaos, the region ruled by chaos and old night. And all the rebel angels agree to his merit 
that Satan has showed extraordinary merit in being willing to do that, has shown courage in being willing to do what they are too afraid to do. And so Satan then gets to the edge of hell where he meets two figures. Who are they? They're allegorical figures. Not chaos. No, chaos and old night are once he leaves hell. But before that, he gets to hell, which has been locked up. The gate has been locked. He's supposed to be imprisoned there. But who is the guard of the gates of hell? Yeah. Um, oh, sin and death. Sin and death. So sin is Satan's daughter. She popped out of his head one day. That's what we find out in heaven. Um, well, which Greek goddess popped out of Zeus's head? Athena. Athena. I thought she came from his thigh. Um, no, then he's... Then, um, they're different stories. No, Athena come, comes out of Zeus's head. Um, it's you're thinking of Semele. Oh yes, yes I am. Um, so Athena pops out of Zeus's head. In heaven, sin has popped out of Satan's head. Um, this is an allegorical moment of paradise lost, which there aren't many of. But we've talked a little bit about allegory. So what does that mean? How do we interpret sin popping out of Satan's head? Yeah. He conceived the idea of sin. And then you take conception as um, what it means biologically and not only what it means mentally. <clears throat> so sin is conceived in Satan's head and therefore born out of Satan's head. Um, most of us are conceived in the womb, like that um, extraordinary baby that who talks about? Who saw the world and went back? Oh, the infant oh. of the man. The Retalian infant. Yeah. Um, but sin is conceived in, Satan head, in Satan's head. Satan has forgotten this somehow, but sin explains it. That um, I was born and um, everyone called me sin and for a sign portentous took me. Um, and the idea is that sin is a sign. That is, there's a pun there. That sin is a sign of sin. That sin is an allegorical figure, and what she represents is, you could almost say, the fact that allegory has been born. That now you need signs to tell you who's good and who's bad. So the very idea of the sign of sin is that you now have signs. You now have something that has to be labeled. Things are no longer what they seem. Yeah, it is. Um, so sin is a sign. And at first, Satan doesn't like her. But then he gets used to her, and he sees his image in her. So he falls in love with her. So having fallen in love with her, despite the fact that she's his daughter, but this is like Greek mythology, he has sex with her. And Satan, having sex with sin, produces whom? You already said out. Death. Death. So death is Satan's son and grandson, both. Right? You get the 
incestuous family tree, son and grandson both. I don't know if this is true, but my sister once lived in Appalachia um, and became friends with lots of people there. And she claims it's true, so otherwise I wouldn't tell you this story. Um, but a friend of hers, um, father died, and um, the friend was distraught. And she said, no, I know that's really hard that your father died. And he said, you don't understand. He was both my father and my brother. Uh. Um, and, but she claims he meant it. Now, he may, I think he was, she thinks it's true. I think he may have been pulling her leg, but on the other hand, his father had just died, so would he have been pulling her leg under those circumstances? I don't know. Um, meant it like, metaphorically, like his best friend, his brother. Yeah, yeah. What do you feel about, how do you, th- how do you feel when people call their fathers bro? I don't think I've actually ever heard I don't think it. I've ever seen anyone do yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> fair point. Would it be yucky? Yeah, it would. <laughs> I'm having a bromance with my father. Um, okay, now you guys are finally weirded out. All that done, all that Milton, whatevs. But, um, so, um, Satan and death are about to go at it, and sin intervenes. And says, how can you be doing this to each other? Um, and then Satan says, look, you guys let me out, and I will give you a world. You don't have to obey God. I mean, he's not on your side. Look what he's done to you. I will give you a world of your own if you let me out. That's what I'm going to try to do is give you a whole new world. So they agree. Into chaos he goes, staring into the womb of nature and perhaps her grave, um, maybe the place where the almighty maker found his dark materials to create new worlds. And um, he manages to slog through chaos past um, the realm of chaos and old night, who are the consorts of chaos. And he gets to our world, which is just hanging at the edge of the precincts of light. Beautiful, beautiful description. One of the places where Milton is at his most visual. Um, Our world at the edge of the universe of light. And there it is. And... um, it's so beautiful and so new and so close to darkness, although no one in our world knows that. And then he lands on the top of a mountain within our world, evil and in an evil hour. And then God, um, then we go to heaven. And God and Satan have a discussion. Excuse me, not God and Satan. God and the Son of God have a discussion about um, what to do now that Satan has escaped hell. And um, God says to his son... Can you believe that Satan escaped? Nothing could stop him. It's amazing. We tried and tried and tried, but we couldn't stop him from escaping. And what are we supposed to do? And then this is, um, so this is all new to you. Um, But look 
at what he says. This is um, book three, line 55. And this is the first time God speaks in Paradise Lost. And one of the things you'll notice is that when God speaks, <coughs> it's not great poetry. Milton does not give God great poetry. Now, that can make perfect sense because poetry may be a fallen art. The idea of poetry is that it's not straightforward, that its power is, might be a fallen power, not the directness and the concision and the compression of pure truth. So everyone agrees that, God's, that God doesn't speak great poetry. C.S. Lewis agrees with Philip Pullman about that. Um, the question is, is great po- do you want God speaking great poetry or not? Now, if you've read the book of Job, you really do want God speaking great poetry because he does. The book of Job is the place in the Bible where God speaks greatest length. And um, boy, is his poetry great there. But in Paris, Paradise Lost, um, he's not really that interesting as a rhetorician. However, there's some interest in what he says. So, line 56, now had the Almighty Father from above, from the pure Empyrean where he sits, high throned above all height, bent down his eye, his own works, and their works, at once to view about him all the sanctities of heaven stood thick as stars, and from his sight received beatitude past utterance. On his right, the radiant image of his glory sat his only son. So sitting next to God is the radiant image of his glory. Now what sin has told Satan is, is she says to him, thyself in me, thy perfect image viewing, you fell in love with me. So sin is the image of Satan, the son. So now you can see that there's a series of um, phonetic puns here. Sin is a sign and corresponds with Satan to the son in heaven. So sin, sign, probably Satan. Say it in the in a kind of um, dra- drawling British way. Sin, sign, Satan, son. Um, but sin, sign, and son are certainly being put together. And the son is the perfect image of the father as sin is the perfect image of Satan. So, the radiant image of his glory sat his only son. On earth he first beheld our two first parents. So God first looks at Adam and Eve, yet the only two of mankind in the happy garden placed reaping immortal fruits of joy and love. So they're in the garden, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love in blissful solitude. So they're alone and in bliss. So that's what God first looks at. He then surveyed hell and the gulf between, between earth and hell, and Satan there coasting the wall of heaven on this side, night, in the dun air sublime. So the wall of heaven is to our side of night, not the hell side, but this side of night. And Satan is coasting like a ship 
just offshore, coasting the wall of heaven on this side of night in the dun air sublime, and ready now to stoop with wearied wings and willing feet on the bare outside of this world that seemed firm land embosomed without firmament. So the world is firm land even though it's not supported by anything. Uncertain which in ocean or in air. So it's like an island, whether in the ocean of space or the air of space. Him, God beholding from his prospect high, wherein past, present, future he beholds. So God sees the past, the present, and the future all at once. Him, God beholding, thus to his only son foreseeing spake. So now God speaks. He sees what's going to happen, and he speaks. And here is God's speech. Only begotten son, the son who's going to be named Jesus when he's born, but now he's simply called the son. Jesus is his human name. Um, Jesus is actually just Joshua. Um, he's named after Joshua and by Mary and Joseph. Um, but in heaven, he's known simply as the son. Only begotten son, seest thou what rage transports our adversary, whom no bounds prescribed, no bars of hell, nor all the chains heaped on and there, nor yet the main abyss wide interrupt can hold. So bent he seems on desperate revenge that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. Now, you have to ask yourself, especially if you're deciding whether you're an angelic reader of Paradise Lost or not, whether God is making a pretty vicious joke here. Because what he's basically saying is, I really tried to keep Satan in hell, but he's so angry that even I can't keep him there. So how almighty is God if he can't keep Satan in hell? Yeah, the answer would be, not that almighty. The other possibility, and this clearly is what um, God means, is that it's a joke. He's basically saying, look at him. I can't possibly stop him. Um, he'll make another joke like that later on in Paradise Lost, and the son will say, yeah, pretty good joke, Dad. Um, justly hast thou them in derision, Father. What, what God says to the son is, and this is a place where you might have to wonder what the narrator is thinking. But later on, God will say to the son, when Satan and the rebel angels start the attack, God says to the son, now nearly it concerns us to take care of our divinity since such a foe is now raised against us and we have to make sure of this, our high place, our hill, as though he's worried. And then the son says, justly hast thou them in derision father. That is, um, yeah, you're jeering at them and pretending to be scared when you're not, and that's very just that you should do that. So the thing about God is not only does he not speak great poetry, but he is kind of sarcastic, which might not really be your vision of God. A God who doesn't speak great poetry but who's really straightforward, that's one thing. But a sarcastic God becomes really a lot more troubling. Um, but Milton's God is certainly sarcastic. Um, and he says, oh, I really tried, but he broke out of hell. I just don't know what to do. And now through all 
restraint broke loose. So Benti seems on desperate revenge, excuse me, and then God makes a prediction that shall redound upon his own rebellious head. That is, everything he's trying to do, he's going to get punished for. Everything he does is going to bounce back at him. And now, through all restraint broke loose, he wings his way not far off heaven. So there he is near heaven in the precincts of light, directly towards the new created world, and man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy, or worse, by some false guile, pervert, and shall pervert. So now we get God's foreknowledge. Satan is going to try to pervert him, and God says, yep, and he's going to succeed. For man will hearken to his glozing lies and easily transgress the sole command, sole pledge of his obedience, so will fall he and his faithless progeny. Whose fault? Whose but his own? Ingrate! He had of me all he could have. I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Famous line. Such I created all the ethereal powers. That is not only us, we are an ethereal power, but also the angels and spirits, both them who stood and them who failed. Freely they stood who stood and fell who fell. Not free, what proof could they have given? Sincere of true allegiance, constant faith or love, where only what they needs must do appeared, not what they would. So what he's saying is I made all the ethereal powers and spirits free, free to fall, but able not to fall as well. Now there's one, this is the Book of Ephraim thing that brought this up, there's one really interesting ambiguity here, which is, it's like the ambiguity of um, justify the ways of God to men. Here's another ambiguity. Um, paraphrase. And now through all restraint broke loose, Paraphrase. We'll just do it bit by bit. Uh, he's broken his way through every block I put in front of him. Right, good. He wings his way not far off heaven. He's heading toward the new world, which is close to heaven. Yeah, yeah. And which is almost like um, the edge of heaven itself because it's so wonderful. Not far off heaven, in the precincts of light. That's where the new world is, in the precincts of light. Directly towards the new created world. Which world? Earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. All right, so directly towards the new created world and man they are placed. So, put here. Okay, and, and, and the humans who are put there with purpose to say, if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile, pervert. So he's going to try and destroy them or worse than that, sway them. So it's his purpose to see whether he can destroy or pervert us. Um, any other possibility? 
In other words, you're reading it as he wings his way with purpose to assay if man by force he can destroy or worse. I think the word purpose to assay can be applied to the humans on earth. Because like, 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 with purpose... So, because man placed there, comma, with purpose, so it seemed like that is supposed to apply to man. Uh-huh. Okay, so it could be man's purpose, um, unless it turns out Satan is within us. So that's a nice idea. There's one third possibility. So you're so one possibility is he is winging his way towards his new created world with purpose to say if he can destroy man by force or worse by um, pervert him by some false guile. Your possibility, Taylor, is that um, he's going towards this world and man there placed, man who has the purpose of a saying, if him by force he can destroy. So man will be who, who will test whether Satan can destroy him. That goes with the idea of Eve saying, I can stand up to Satan, let me know. So it may be that humans are tempted to see whether Satan can trick them. And that temptation is the trick. That is, Satan is saying, um, I mean, this doesn't happen explicitly, but psychologically it can be something like, I don't think that you're going to be able to convince me. I know you're Satan. You're not going to be able to convince me to um, sin. Do your best. I just want to see what your best is because I want to resist it. And psychologically, the very fact that they're so interested in Satan might be the temptation that they don't even realize is the temptation. If anyone has seen the movie Smooth Talk or read the Joyce Carol Oates story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Um, you, have you, Abby? You, it looks slightly familiar. It's a great movie, Smooth Talk, Treat Williams. Um, and the story is a really great, scary story. Where are you going? Where have you been? And it's essentially a guy shows up. His name is Arnold Friend. And so what's written on the side of his car is A Friend. And um, he um, essentially talks a young... And there's a serial murderer going, around, murderer going around. It's a little bit like a good man is hard to find. And um, he talks a young girl <coughs> into going with him, a young girl that is a 17-year-old girl, into going with him even though she thinks he might be the serial murder, murderer. Mm. And, um, and it's a story about her liking the idea of, of toying with temptation. And the point is that if you toy with temptation, it's because you're tempted. Um, if you toy with temptation, you're actually not quite resisting it. And so that could be psychologically what's going on. When Eve says, I'm sure I can stand up to Satan, and I want to prove it to myself, that for Milton, that um, is the part where the temptation starts. It starts before she knows it's starting. It's, she is tempting herself to want to experience temptation. In other words, there are two ideas of temptation or of what our attitude towards temptation um, might be in 
our own sense of moral um, experience. One is you should always avoid temptation. And if good people will not put themselves in, in the way of temptation, if there's a possibility of temptation, they will avoid it. And the other is, if you always avoid temptation, you have no idea whether you're a good person or not. Mm. You would only know you were a good person if you could resist temptation instead of running away from it. So those two possibilities, I mean, I think we both feel um, in real life, in everyday life, um, that they're both... Um, that they're choices we make all the time. Whether to allow ourselves to be put in, put in the way of temptation, knowing or hoping that we know that we will be able to resist it, or whether we will simply worry that we won't be able to resist it, and therefore um, we'll avoid it in a way that might be um, described possibly as cowardly. So Milton himself in Areopagitica, his... his um, treatise on free speech, said that very famous set of lines, I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue. That is, a virtue which hides in a convent, in a cloister, and doesn't test itself against the things of the world. Because then what you have is fearfulness and cowardice rather than courage and strength. And that is one reason that he's for freedom of the press. That is, the idea is that he's arguing against the claims against freedom of the press. And uh, my 13-year-old son is always saying this about Fox News. He says, they should be made illegal. <laughs> um, wow. And... Yeah, and, well, he watches a lot of Jon Stewart, and he's always <laughs> outraged. Um, and um, I keep saying, that's a cure worse than the disease. And he says, how can you say that? Um, I mean, what they say is just so wrong. Um, but what Milton's view for, I mean, that's the view against freedom of the press, that you shouldn't let people say whatever they want, because they'll say really dangerous, awful, terrible things, and you have to protect the citizenry from false news, from propaganda, from um, any kind of misleading information. And that's the anti-free speech, anti-freedom of the press view. And Milton's view, which is the opposite, is you're not doing anything by protecting people. You have to let people know and think through and understand what the arguments are and then make their own decisions. And um, that's where our First Amendment comes from. So um, Milton says that, and um, that idea then would be one which seems to support Eve going off alone, rather than being protected by Mr. Patriarch Adam. Um, no, she has freedom too. And she's entitled to that freedom. That's certainly what you get in Areopagitica. Um, now, it's a little bit complicated because what Adam actually says in Areopagitica is that this is true after the eating the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
um, that is now that we're fallen, the only way that we'll know what good is is by also knowing what evil is. It was out of the rind, he says, of one apple tasted that we came to know good and evil, which is to say we came to know good by means of evil. By knowing what's evil, we could also know what was good. And after the fall, there has to be perfect freedom. He doesn't say in Aripagitica that before the fall, you needed that also. But I think it's, you can guess that he would think that. Um, the Garden of Eden is a fugitive and cloistered place, a place of fugitive and cloistered virtue. And that would be the wrong thing. So um, Taylor's reading of man there placed with purpose to assay if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false god pervert, that um, we are created within us, with within us a defiant but also temptable streak that we want to see the worst temptations to do what we don't want to do. We want to see what those temptations are to test ourselves against them. Um, the word tempt means test. In French, it's actually the same word, tenter, to test and to tempt. They're the same thing. And so we might want that. There's a third possibility, though. So one possibility is it's Satan's purpose to assay whether we can be destroyed or perverted. The second possibility, Taylor's possibility, is that it is man's purpose to see whether we can be perverted or destroyed. What's the third possibility? Who placed us here? Who placed man there? Yeah. So, and man there placed, why? Why was man placed there? With purpose to assay if he, if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false guile pervert. So God put us here for the purpose of being tested. Yeah, and also to see whether Satan would defeat us or not. Mm. We're kind of experimental subjects in God's lab. So we were put here to see, at the edge of things, to see whether Satan could destroy us. So the thing to notice here, do you see, do you see those, those are the two major possibilities. That is that Satan is on his way with purpose to say if him by force he can destroy or worse by some false god pervert, or he's going towards this new created world and man there placed with purpose to say. So the placement of man in this world was to see whether Satan could destroy us. Now, I think it's clear that they're both there, and probably some version of Taylor's, Taylor's is there too, but it's clear that those two are there. And that means that God and Satan have the same purpose, and that's kind of um, disconcerting that God and Satan should both be seeing. We're basically the, the prize in the battle between God and Satan. We're the stakes we're the ante in the game that they're playing. And so if Satan's purpose is to see if he can destroy us, and God has the same purpose, 
it becomes much harder to say God is good and Satan is evil and they're different. Because in this case, at least, they are agreeing to the same test. Now, that happens in the book of Job as well. And in the book of Job, it's a very strange thing. People know about the book of Job, right? Um, no, sort of. Um, so in the book of Job, the book of Job begins, the book of Job is a very, very strange book, um, quite wonderful. The only book in the entire Old Testament um, whose hero and main character is not, um, I'm trying to think whether I would say this about Genesis. No, I wouldn't. Um, whose hero and main character is a Gentile. That is, there, there are no um, Jews, no, no Israelites in the book of Job. Um, so it's actually an amazing book because it's a book. Two, two books in the Old Testament are about um, the greatness of Gentiles. Um, one is the book of Job and one is the book of Ruth. And um, in the book of Job, um, God is meeting with all the angels. That's how it begins. God meets with all the angels. And in comes Satan, one of God's um, angels. He's not, in the book of Job, the king of the devils, the prince of the devils. Um, he's not a fallen angel. He's an angel. Um, angel, by the way, in Greek, do you know what it means? Angelos? Why? No. It means messenger. Oh, yeah, I think that. Okay. Yeah, so angels are actually messengers of God. The idea that they're these powerful beings is secondary to the fact that they're messengers. So in comes one messenger, one angel, one agent of God. And God says, Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been walking up and down on the earth and looking at how terrible human beings are. And God says, yeah, what about my servant Job? Hadn't, didn't think of him, did he? But he's completely loyal and wonderful and um, loves me and everything about Job is great. So human beings can actually be okay look at Job. And Satan says, yeah, sure, he's fine. He belongs to the one one-hundredth of the one percent. Um, he's rich, he's happy, he's got a family that loves him, everything is good for him, why would he ever complain about you? And God says, oh, you think that he's not complaining about me because, I, because he's so wealthy? Fine, destroy whatever you want. Um, make him poor. And, um, and Satan says, you know, if I were to make him poor, he would curse you. And God says, you want to bet? And Satan says, yeah. So Job is made the stakes between God and Satan. And so, um, and what God says is, just leave him alone, but you can destroy all his wealth. So Satan does. Um, if you know the end of Moby Dick, at the very end of Moby Dick, the epigraph to the last chapter, or maybe it's the title of the last chapter, is, and I alone am escaped to tell thee. That's what happens in the book of Job. That is, Job is hanging, hanging out with his wife, and, and um, they're, they're um, enjoying themselves, and a servant comes running in and says, there is a terrible storm and whirlwind, and um, everything that you own has been destroyed, and I alone am escaped to tell you. And Job says, that's really awful, but I trust God. So then a little while later, God is meeting with having another affair, another do in heaven. And Satan comes in and he says, where have you been? And Satan says, looking at how evil everyone on earth is. And God says, but look at Job. You destroyed everything he had and he still loves me. 
And Satan says, yeah, that's because he's still healthy. When you got your health, Job thinks you got everything. God says, fine, make him completely and utterly miserable physically. Just don't kill him. And you can kill his family. Um, you can kill every, You can take away everything he owns and make him miserable. Just don't kill him. So Satan says, good, and does that to Job. <laughs> and now Job is covered with sores, just running. He's just a running mass of pus and oh. misery. And um, the only person left to him is his wife. He's lost all his children. They've all been killed. Um, and it's just really, really awful. And his wife says, what is wrong with you? Curse God and die. And Job says, no, I'm not going to curse God no matter what. And that's basically the setup of the book of Job. That's the first, um, that's part one of the book of Job, is Job refusing to curse God. But the point is that so Satan and God in the book of Job, and this is clearly what Milton is thinking of, they agree to torment us. It's a little bit like the Hunger Games. Mm. That is, that um, their bets being placed. And is, is President Snow like Satan or is he like God? And the answer is yes. So, sorry if that's too abstruse a reference for you. But, um, yeah, so Snow is like God and like Satan simultaneously, like Milton's God, like Job's God. Um, and that's what you get here. So they both have the same purpose, yeah. So does that also mean if Satan is saying, like, oh, look at how evil human beings are, is he also agreeing that to be good is to, like, in the book of Job, he is, yeah. Um, but in the way Milton is, it is um, rejiggering that in Paradise <coughs> Lost is what we talked about on Tuesday, which is when he says, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, furthest from him is best. So the idea is that God can decide what's right but that isn't the same thing as what's best. Um, and so right there in that phrase is a kind of legal sense of right um, rather than a moral sense. And you know it's like when we talk about rights. Um, the word right, when it's used in a legal sense, comes from an older word. Um, I think none of you take French. I keep imagining you do, and yet I know you don't. OK, so um, do you know how you say law in French? Law? Yeah. No. Droit. You know how you say right in French? Droit. Yeah. So the word for law and the word for, for right, as in what's correct, also the right hand, but that's because it's the correct hand to do things with. Mm -hmm. um, or it's the thing, it's what you can do things um, with correctly, most people. Any of you lefties? Um, gauche. Yeah, gauche in French um, mm -hmm. means left, and it also means that Awkward. you botch things. Awkward. Um, because you're trying to do with your left hand what um, if you're right-handed, you would be better to do with your right hand. Um, so the word right and the word legal are the same in lots of languages and conceptually. Satan is splitting those up. He's saying what's legally binding, that's what God gets to decide, but what's good furthest from him is best, that's separate from what God gets to decide. He gets to make the laws, but the fact that he gets to make the laws doesn't mean that his laws are good laws. 
And that's, that's what we were talking about. Luther would say, yeah, God, any law God makes is therefore a good law because God defines not only what's, what's legal but what's good. It's, he gets to define what's good. Milton and Satan very clearly think that if God does what's good, that's not a necessary truth. That's not like saying 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's rather like saying x squared equals 4, therefore x equals 2 or negative 2. That is, that God figures out what to do by solving instantaneously. He doesn't actually have to solve it. He knows it. But by knowing what the answer to the question, what is good, is. He knows the answer to the question, and he therefore does good. That's the theological view that Milton would have, forgetting whether he really does have that view, but that at least is the approach he would take, that God, knowing what's good, does what's good. Whereas the other possibility is God doing something makes it good by the fact that he's doing it. And Satan is explicitly the first view that God, knowing what's good, does what's good, makes good independent of God. It would be good whether God did it or not. Whereas the second view is anything God does is good. And um, nothing can be good unless God does it. And God can't possibly do what isn't good because the fact that he does it is what makes it good. Satan takes the first view that God can dispose and bid what shall be right, that is what the law requires, what his law requires, but given that, furthest from him is best. That is, he can say what's legal, but I'm saying what's good best being the superlative of good, good, better, best. So here what we have then is, and so to answer your question then, um, what Satan, what the Miltonic version of what Satan says in the book of Job is something like, um, Job is loyal to you. He follows your laws, but that's only because you treat him so well. If you treated him badly, he would rebel. And um, God says, no, he's my servant. Servant, he would, he's my serpent. He's my servant. He will never rebel. And um, that turns out to be true. But it doesn't mean that Satan is conceding that being loyal to God is good. Um, or is being loyal to goodness? There are, other, there are other questions about whether loyalty is always good or not, even if you're loyal to something not good. Um, but that's the issue here. So, but then the other thing to see about God's first speech is, as we're about to see Adam and Eve, we will see this in book four, they're on earth and they are loving God. And what they do when they wake up in the morning, we're going to see this in book four, they wake up in the morning and they praise God and express boundless gratitude for their creation. They sing hymns to him every morning and every night. They utterly love God. And in the meantime, God is up in heaven saying, ingrate, disgusting, I hate these people because they're going to sin against me. 
Now, what I would compare that to is a parent with an infant, holding an infant, and suddenly getting furious at the infant and saying, I know you're going to be an obnoxious teenager and you're going to refuse to walk with me in the mall. You disgusting child. I hate you. And that's essentially what God is doing. He's, Adam and Eve are not ingrates at this point. He can see that they will be, but he's already describing them as though they are. And I think that's really hard to um, reconcile you to loving God in Paradise Lost. That what he's saying is he will fall, he and his faithless progeny, whose fault, whose but his own ingrate, he had of me all he could have. I made him just and right. But look at him. And if they look at him, what they'll see is Adam and Eve praising God. But he can see the future. And he's already angry at what they're going to do in the future. So, having said that, he then says, well, there's one difference between the rebel angels and humans. The humans are falling because they're tempted by Satan, whereas the rebel angels tempted themselves. They were self-tempted. So there's a little tiny, tiny bit of an excuse for the humans, but only a little bit. They can be saved. But they can't just be saved. It can't just be, all right, they sinned, but they were sorry, so it's all fine. Because once they sin, they'll deprave themselves, and they won't even be able to ask for forgiveness. And even if they could ask for forgiveness, what could they possibly do to make up for what they'd done? I gave them everything. How could they possibly pay me back out of their own resources when all their resources come from me? They have to die. They have to go to hell forever. And then God says, in a very chilling line, die he or justice must. Either humans have to die or justice will die. And justice will never die, so humans have to die. Now, later, now notice that he's, he's appealing to the idea of necessity. If I were to save humans, if I were to show them any mercy, then that would be destroying justice. And therefore, I can't. And then he says, unless... So here's the, here's the little um, loophole. Unless another can be found to pay the penalty. Because the penalty has to be paid. OK, so just think about this for a second. Who is going to pay the penalty? Who is this other? The son. The son. So think about what God is saying. Human sinned. Someone's got to die for that. It's going to have to be humans, because no one else deserves to die. Unless one of you all, he says to all the angels, are willing to die instead. Because, the, because there has to be the payment of what he calls the rigid satisfaction, death for death. That is, they are going to die unless someone else is willing to die. So notice now what we're talking about is a hostage situation. If you're willing to give me a hostage that I can kill, I'll let you go. I'll let, I'll let him go. Anyone willing to be a hostage and be killed for him? 
at this point all the angels in heaven. He looks at them all and he says, lives, that, lives there in heaven, love so dear. And all the angels kind of look at the tips of their wings. And they're just, you know, it's really nice of God that he's doing this, and I really hope someone volunteers. <laughs> that seems to be like a callback to what just happened with Satan. Exactly. Exactly. So then when no one else volunteers, the son says, okay, I will do it. I will pay life for life. So he immediately changes death for death into life for life. Then he says, because I know that you won't let me die forever um, because you wouldn't do that. (laughs) Um, You're just going to, you know, I'll die and then I'll come back to heaven. And God says, see, you're amazing. All you other guys, look at him. Yeah, you die, you come back to heaven, and then humans will be um, saved. And all the angels say, wow, he's so great, we're not worthy. Um, So exactly what happened in hell now happens in heaven. It's another parallel. Um, Exactly what happened, which is there's a call for volunteers for an impossibly frightening task. No, No one volunteers. Finally, someone does volunteer. And everyone says, yes, you are amazing. And what the, what, the, what the angels say is, by merit, they, sang, they sing the son, by merit more than birthright, son of God. He's just shown how much better he is than they are. Um, so then we get to, um, we go down to earth. And on earth, Satan, and this I really want to show, you know, we're going to stop in seven minutes, and this is years of paradise lost. But on earth, Satan sees Adam and Eve. He has an amazing soliloquy at the beginning of book four, where he says, um, myself am hell which way I fly is hell. Remember he said in book one, the mind is its own place and can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. But in book four, and what he meant by that was, here I am in hell, but I can turn it into heaven in my mind. But in book four, he gets back to a heavenly place. He gets back to paradise. And he says, no, I'm still in hell here. Um, This is line... 72, let's say, me miserable, which way shall I fly infinite wrath and infinite despair, which way I fly is health, myself am hell, excuse me, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell, and in the lowest deep, a lower deep self threatening to devour me opens wide to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven, so even on earth he's in hell, he gets this by the way from Christopher Marlowe, um, whose satanic figure, Mephistopheles, um, Dr. Faustus, Mephistopheles says, sell me your soul, you can have fun for seven years, and then you'll come to hell with me. And Dr. Faustus says to him, but look, here you are on earth. What are you talking about? Um, I don't believe in hell. Look at you, you're on earth. You're supposed to be in hell, but you're on earth. And Mephistopheles famously says, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Mm. Wherever Mephistopheles is, he's in hell. And um, Satan is saying something similar because this is also about giving up your soul for temporary pleasure. At any rate, Satan then goes to the tree of life and go now 
to um, line 245. There he looks around. Thus was this place a happy rural seat of various view. Groves whose rich trees wept, odorous gums and balm. Others whose fruit burnished with golden rind hung amiable. Hesperian fables true, if true, here only, and a delicious taste. And then go down to 268 where he's comparing all these other places to paradise and this famous simile, not that fair field of Enna, where Proserpine gathering flowers, herself a fairer flower by gloomy dis was gathered, which was <coughs> series all that pain to seek her through the world. And this is going to, the other shoe's going to fall with, could with this paradise of Eden strive. It's the most beautiful place in the world, and the place where Proserpine was taken to the underworld by Pluto, by Dis, couldn't even compare, even though Ceres, cost Ceres, Proserpine's mother, all that pain to seek her through the world. It's the most beautiful garden in the world. And then Adam and Eve show up, and Satan can't believe what he sees. Go now to line 355. When Satan... Still in gaze, as first he stood. So, so he's been standing there all day long. Now it's night, and Satan still in gaze, as first he st stood. Scarce thus at length failed speech, recovered sad. Now remember in book one, when he sees the rebel angels, he can't speak then. Thrice he essayed to speak to them. Thrice he essayed, and thrice, in spite of scorn, Tears such as angels shed burst forth. So now he sees Adam and Eve, and again he finds himself self speechless, but then finally he says, Oh hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss, thus high advanced, creatures of other mold, earthborn perhaps not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits bright, little inferior, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder and could love. So lively shines in them divine resemblance and such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath poured. So he sees Adam and Eve and he falls in love with them. They're so beautiful. They're so wonderful. And then he says, and he's talking about himself, but just listen to the regret here. Ah, gentle pair, ye little think how nigh your change approaches when all these delights will vanish and deliver ye to woe. More woe, the more your taste is now of joy. Happy, but for so happy, ill-secured long to continue. So notice his regret here. I can't believe God didn't protect you better from me. Here you are, happy but ill-secured, long to continue. And this high seat, your heaven, ill-fenced for heaven to keep out such a foe as now is entered. It's, he regrets that God didn't protect them from him. He's got his job, which is to pervert them, to make them sin. But he doesn't want to. 
yet no purposed foe to you whom I could pity, thus forlorn, though I unpitied. So no one pities me, but I could pity you. You are so forlorn. And then he says, league with you I seek. I want to be your friend. And mutual amity, mutual friendship, so straight, so close, that I with you must dwell, or you with me henceforth. So we're going to live together from now on. My dwelling haply may not please like this fair paradise your sense, yet such except your maker's work he gave it me, which I as freely give. There's that word freedom again. And as the great critic William Empson says, here Satan is making Adam and Eve the eerie offer of all he has. So Satan has almost nothing left, but he's going to give all of it to Adam and Eve. Hell shall unfold to entertain you to her widest gates and send forth all her kings. There will be room, not like these narrow limits, to receive your numerous offspring. If no better place, thank him who puts me loath to this revenge on you who wrong me not for him who wronged. So, again, he is going to harm not those who have not done wrong in revenge as payback for the wrong that's been done to him. That's what God gets from the son. Adam and Eve have wronged God, and the son will suffer for it in order to pay back the wrong done by Adam and Eve. Here Satan is saying, God wronged me, and Adam and Eve will suffer for the wrong God did to me. Same structure. <coughs> and then just we'll just finish this. And should I at your harmless innocence melt as I do? So there you are, harmless, and I'm melting thinking about it. Yet, even though I do melt, yet public reason just. So he's calling upon justice. Remember what God said, die he or justice must. Yet, public reason just, honor and empire with revenge enlarged by conquering this new world compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So spake the fiend, and with necessity, the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. So what? Milton or his narrator is saying is when you say that something, it's necessary to do something, there's no choice. Milton is saying just in three words, that's what tyrants always say. Necessity is always the tyrant's play. And it's very easy for the narrator to say this about Satan. Look how terrible everything Satan is doing. This is disgusting what he's doing here. But the point is if you're against what Satan is doing, you should be against what God is doing in Paradise Lost also. Milton makes the parallel as absolute as he possibly can between Satan's political maneuverings and God's political maneuverings. And um, anyhow, so there is a very brief background for Paradise Lost, the briefest. Um, you should take a class in it someday. someday. You should take several. Um, OK, papers? I guess not. <laughs>
You want us to write on a poem we haven't yet read, right? Yeah, the usual. Yeah. You can have read it, just...